90% of the time, I feel that church is just something that families do. It's it's the new family dinner. I'm not going too much now, uh, and I miss the fellowship. I think it brings a, a connection to us. You something I need to go to more often? A place to find answers. Some churches are not relevant to today's society. Like, it's not really updated with nowadays times and stuff like that. Everybody's too worried about stepping on somebody else's toes. It's a declining role or a negative role now, and that's, I guess, as a church leader, that's partly my fault. The church plays a huge role in our culture. You know, it impacts everything. On the economy, on politics, on everything. I think that the churches are too much separated by their denominations. It is relevant to culture, but not particularly to mine. All people, whether they admit it or not, are reaching out for religion of one form or another. I think that the Bible They've got some good editors in there. I grew up and I still believe that the Bible is a very important written historical document. I don't think that um, word for word it's truth. The interpretation changes as you're ready to accept that. A lot of it is not uh, geared to today's world. Because it's like stories just told down, told down until somebody started to write it down. I think the Bible is relevant in not only American culture, but all other cultures. It's still the number one best-selling book in the world. I think it's oversold sometimes. I think it's being challenged a lot more these days. I cannot say that uh, being lost in the wilderness and eating bugs is relevant for me. When people say it's not relevant, it's because they don't read it. Whatever situation you fall into, you can find one just like it in the Bible. So is the Bible relevant today? It's our myth we want to tackle together today and, and look at a little more carefully. You know, way back in the 18th century, there was a, a French philosopher by the name of Voltaire. You maybe have heard of him and if you studied him maybe in college. And, and Voltaire had a prediction. He said that a hundred years from his lifetime, the Bible would no longer be uh, would be no longer be read, that it basically would disappear from the public sector, that nobody would be interested in it. That was Voltaire's take on the whole thing. And yet here we find ourselves today in this century and in this time, and read a quote like this. There's a, a man who wrote a book just recently. I want to read this quote with you. Um, John Loftus, he, he just published a book that came out, and, and the title is Christian Tradition and the Bible is Irrelevant. That's the title of it. And here's a quote from that book. Let's just face it. The Bible and the people who produced it were barbaric and superstitious. The only redeeming qualities about the Bible or the Christian tradition are those things that civilized people agree with about them. And hence, they're irrelevant to modern scientifically literate people. So says John Loftus. How do you answer that? We do live in a, a day and an age, and, and have you ever had somebody challenge you on this one? Just curious. We've been asking this every once in a while. How many of you have dealt with this question? Lots of hands going up. Maybe people in your own family, maybe people in the workplace, maybe people across the street, people who are skeptics. Um, you know, we live in a day and age where this comes up a lot. And, and it's really nothing new to ask that question. Is the Bible relevant? You know, that's a great question. It is an important one in that if it's not relevant, well, why read it, right? Why engage in it if it's not relevant? But if it is, uh, then we must read it. And here's why. 
Because I think it comes down, if we break this down, really what's behind this question, we've got to get to a bigger question, and that is, is the Bible truly God's Word? That's where we're going to start today, and if you're taking notes, write that down. Is the Bible truly God's Word? I'm going to start there, because is it? You know, if, if it's not, and it's just a book of opinions, and, and just a, a work of mankind, uh, made throughout the generations, well, it might be a good read. It might be interesting like any other New York Times bestseller. And it might be interesting just to have some facts and information about what's in the Bible uh, if it's just a book. But if it's truly God's book, truly God's word, well, then it probably should get our attention in a bigger way. This is not just a passing fad. It's not just something to whisk underneath the rug and say, oh, well, I guess that's not such a big deal. Oh, if it's God's word, then we have something that we need to dwell on today. Is it God's word? Uh, there's a great verse, and, and we read it in, in, in the scriptures today, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Let's, let's read this together. All scripture is God-breathed. Familiar to you? Maybe you've heard that one before. Uh, maybe you're new to the faith and you haven't read that before. Um, this is one of the key verses in the doctrine of inspiration, that our understanding that God's word isn't just words of man or words of people that have written down their ideas, but that truly God's word is what we find in scripture. It is inspired, it is of God. Um, There's a great word here. I've taught this word now and then, and I'll just keep teaching because it's such a great word. It was the first Greek word I learned way back in confirmation class, and here's the word, theopneustos. Say that. Oh, that was really wimpy. Come on, eight o'clockers, let's go. Theopneustos. There it is. And that word literally means theo, which means God, neustos, breathed. And uh, the tie-in there, the word is spelled a P-N, like if you go to pneumatic tool section of Home Depot or Lowe's, it's powered by wind. Um, It's God who breathes, exhales, and the word of God uh, comes to us. It's of God. It's from God. It's inspired of God. And because it's inspired and from God, we know it's it's error-free. It's perfect in its original form. God has come to us through his word. That's a big deal. It's inspired. Now, you talk to people and they say, well, that's great. Nice of you to say that. Your pastor told you to say that because if it weren't, he'd be out of a job, right? How do we know it's inspired of God? Now, if you've been raised in the church and you have a respect for God's word, well, our easy answer is, well, because the word says so. Well, imagine if we took that approach to other areas of life and just because a book says so, because everything you read on the internet, you know is true, Right? Or every special you see on the History Channel is always historically correct. I hate to tell you, but a lot of times it's far from the truth. And, 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 you know, the the reality is if we believe everything we read and everything we hear, uh, people know this. Just because the Bible claims that if they have no background in the Bible, they say, well, so what? Prove it to me. So what do you say? How do you prove that the Bible is inspired? Well, you turn to God's Word. You know, there's some incredible things that come out of God's Word. We're going to spend more time on this when we get to that week where we're going to study the the reliability of the Bible and we'll we'll see some of how this stacks up. But, you know, facts that 
that come to, for, to the light are the fact that there are so many copies of early texts in existence that can be compared from different areas and different generations and the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls back in the late 40s that, that revealed that, wow, the texts that we have are extremely accurate, that they can be trusted and we can know. That's, that's one starting point and say, oh, at least it's reliable. We can know that without a doubt. No other book from antiquity has as much documentation and clarity to show that the, the, the script we have in front of us is real and true. But that doesn't necessarily prove it's inspired. Um, here's one, and I've, I love this one, and, and I always keep this when I talk to people because it, it, it just it makes you think, like, wow, this has got to be God's Word. Um, there was a study done some years back, and if you've heard me share this, again, it's, this is just things to have in, 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 in when it, being prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have. Here's an example of just being prepared. Um, there was a study done in, a, in a, a secular university some years back by a professor by the name of Peter Stoner. And, and it was a, a probability assignment he gave to his classroom. He said, I'd like you to, to take a probability shot at figuring out what would be the probability of one person in human history fulfilling seven Old Testament messianic prophecies. Now, keep in mind, in the Old Testament scriptures, there are hundreds of messianic prophecies, over 250 or something, that, that speak specifically about Messiah and, and what, when Messiah comes, what he'd be like, what he would do, what he would accomplish, where he would accomplish this. And, and some of these are as simple as, as that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That is prophesied hundreds of years in advance. The fact that he would be pierced in his hands hundreds of years in advance, and even before crucifixion was even invented, this prophecy was, was out there in, in Old Testament scripture or uh, down through where Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, uh, that he'd be born of a, a virgin. And, and, and you know, all these prophecies, they, they start to add up. It's like, wow, this is huge. All these prophetic messages. And, and Peter Stoner asked his, his class, what do you think the probability would be of one person in human history fulfilling just seven of those prophecies? And, and the, the, the question behind this is, well, you know, couldn't it happen that somebody could maneuver their life and basically figure out how to fulfill Old Testament scripture and then claim to be Messiah. Maybe that's what Jesus did is the thought. And, and Peter assigns this, this, this assignment, and, and it takes weeks. I mean, you've got to figure out how, you know, estimates of civilizations and, and world populations throughout uh, recorded history, and, and uh, there's a lot of guessing involved, but when you get into the numbers and the amount of people that have lived and walked this earth, there's a lot of people. And the, what's the probability of one person fulfilling seven of those prophecies? Well, the answer came out to one shot out of 10 to the 17th power. Now, if you're not a math person, that doesn't make any sense to you. You're like, oh, that's nice. Let's go on with something else, Pastor. No, think about this. That's a number with 17 zeros behind it. And that there's only one chance in 10 to the 17th power. Incredible number. And if you're a, a word picture kind of person and you say, well, what does that look like? What would that be like? Um, here's the example that, that I've read before. It's just helpful to me to understand how incredible this is. You could take the, the, the square uh, or the, uh, the, the earth and the, uh, the land mass of, of the entire earth 
I'm not talking about the oceans, but land mass of all the continents. And, and I say, well, how much space is that? Well, if you took, you know, those square four-inch bathroom tiles, you maybe have them at your house, they're four inches square. Do you know how many of those you would need to cover the land mass of the earth on every continent? Well, the answer to that is you'd need about 10 to the 17th power. That's how many you need to cover every square inch of the world. Well, let's just say then, through your lifetime, you have one chance and one opportunity to bend down and reach for just one tile, and that somewhere on the earth, there is one tile that underneath it has a red dot, only one. What's the probability that you would reach down and pick up that one tile? You got one shot. Well, the answer is one chance in 10 to the 17th power. Got it now? How's that work? How is that possible? And add to that the fact that when Jesus is born into this world and when Jesus begins his earthly ministry all the way through dying on a cross and then rising again, you know, he doesn't fulfill just seven prophecies. He fulfills all of them, hundreds of them. A number that's something like 10 to the, I don't know, 217th power, something like that. It's just some ridiculous number. The probability of somebody just maneuvering their life to make that all play out and then claim to be Messiah, impossible. Unless he really was. And he is. And God reveals to us through God's word, his inspired word, against all odds, God clearly makes it available to us that this is God's word. And this is just one example. There are so many others. If you've ever tried a group project with, with people from, from school or at work to just do a project and you're all in the same room working on a project for a few months together, how frustrating and difficult that is. How about doing it with over 50 people over a span of 1,500 years and make it all tied together seamlessly and woven together. How would you do a group project like that? How would you go about it? You couldn't. And yet we find when we open Scripture and we read it, that's the key, we read it, we find that it all falls together and ties together seamlessly. How do we explain that? Unless it is of God and of His inspiration. It's a big deal to believe that this truly is God's word. But it's not like Jesse Ventura in Minnesota once said when he was governor that, that uh, Christianity is a crutch for weak-minded people. Oh, no. <laughs> He's wrong. It's not weak-minded to believe that God's word truly is inspired and is of God. And the reasoning goes, then, if this truly is God's word... And that, that other question of the myth that, well, is it relevant? Well, if it is God's word, it's got to be relevant. It's one of those things, if God is speaking, let's listen up. Let's hear what he has to say. And here's the amazing thing is, here's really part two to this is, what is he saying? What is the purpose of God's word? You know, a lot of people think this. They, they think the purpose, if it truly is God's word, well, then what is the purpose? And they assume, because they've never actually read it, that it's just a list of, of do's and don'ts. It's a, a boring, dry book that really, yeah, maybe it's God's word, but it's all about following rules and laws and, and being a good person. That that's got to be what the book is all about. That that's the purpose, that's its intent. And yet when we open Scripture and we let the whole of Scripture speak, 
We learn that it's not so much about do's and don'ts as much as it is about a salvation story, a love letter that God is speaking to us of why he has come and why he's come to rescue us. And we see that the whole of Scripture leads us to that place. Let's turn to God's Word a little further here. Let's read this, this quote from, from 2 Timothy 3, verse 15, just before the, the verse we just read. And how from, read it with me, infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You know, what's the purpose of Holy Scripture? To make us wise for salvation. It's not to just pump us up with the information and, and be able to uh, find out if we can pass America's Bible trivia tests, right? Or, or um, I was out at a golf outing on Friday and we got to a hole and they had to, uh, one of these games and, and you could spin uh, this little wheel and, uh, and it would come up with different topics like science and, and current culture as well as there was a, a religion faith uh, um, one that came up and we spun it and sure enough it came up right on religion and faith I'm like yes and, and they asked the question who was called out by Jesus to walk on the water I'm like I think I know that one it's John no I'm kidding it, it was Peter and uh, yeah, we, we got it right. We, we, we got, I don't know what we won for that, big deal. But, you know, that, that's not the purpose of knowing Scripture. No, rather, to know Scripture is to make us wise for salvation. Um, God's Word goes further than that to even say even deeper. What is the purpose of it? Let's read this next verse together. And from John 5, now, keep in mind, this is a quote of Jesus. And he's having a debate with the, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And, and Jesus is pointing out they don't believe because they don't get it. And then he says this. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Now what does Jesus say? He's saying the Old Testament scriptures that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees knew so well, they were so into the information of it that they missed the whole point of it. They missed the purpose. The Old Testament scriptures actually speak of the one that was to come. And we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks just talking about how that's true and how God's word reveals that. But Jesus clarifies the scriptures point to him. He is the center of God's word. The point of God's word is to point us to Jesus, to know Jesus, and not just know about him, but to be in relationship with the word made flesh as God reveals himself. There's another verse that comes up as well. In John 20, this is later after Jesus goes the way of the cross to die for the sin of humanity. Talk about being relevant and our need for him. That same one who would rise again and, and reveal himself as the resurrection and the life John writes this about him. He says, but this is written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, why is the scripture come? What's the purpose? To bring us to a saving faith, a relationship with one known as the Son of God, named Jesus. The center of scripture is Jesus. The intention of the Bible is that we get to know Jesus and his amazing grace an incredible love. And the question then comes up to that myth, well, the Bible's not relevant to today's culture. Oh, yeah? Last time I checked, the needs of humanity haven't changed very much. Mortality rate is still 
Every day, every heartbeat is one day and moment closer to the time when we die. The problems of sin and temptation and struggle and hardship and doubts, fears, struggles, setbacks, pain, suffering, oh, you know, all these things. There's, there's nothing that humanity hasn't been facing all along. And you want to know, is God's word relevant today? Oh, of course it is. It could be said it's never been more relevant because we're surrounded by the need for forgiveness. We're surrounded by the need for grace and the love of God and to know that we're not alone in this struggle today, but that our God knows us and loves us right where we are. I want to show you a picture. I know how well you can see it. It's on the right side. This picture of my daughter, Abby, and this is in Detroit this past week, and, and she was one of those that went down with the youth to make a difference sharing God's word with with children from East Bethlehem and, and from peace in the city and the neighborhoods around that. And, and we had around 30 children that came from the neighborhoods to learn about Jesus this week. And, and, and every day, you know, spending time singing about Jesus, praying to Jesus, and most importantly, opening God's word to learn about Jesus and his amazing love. And I remember this, this was on the last day, saying bye to the kids we were dropping off at East Bethlehem. And, and, uh, this is just one picture. All the kids were getting hugged by these little children and saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. Notice what they're holding in their hands. I don't know if you can make it out. Um, but we also gave them New Testaments to take home to be with their families. And the parents had come Thursday night for a program where they shared what they'd been learning. And, and uh, these kids, many of whom were, were going home in, in very difficult circumstances. Many of them are very used to the sound of gunshots outside their house. Many of them are in neighborhoods where bombed out or burned out, you know, houses right next to them and, and families that are holding together in the best way they can. I, I sat next to a little girl, uh, a little sweetie named Tamaya, and she was telling me her story. And five years old, and she told me about her brothers and sisters, and I asked about any other family, and she's like, well, I, I miss my dad. My dad and mom, they broke up. I haven't seen them for a long time, and she got really sad. And I said, oh, that's got to be really tough. And then she looked up. She's like, do you like popcorn? <laughs> and, you know, just coping, going on with life. Uh, one of the children, and, and this, this was incredible. Um, when the children had some breakthroughs when we were studying the word and, and as our youth were teaching and, and leading the kids in the word of God and the lessons for the day. Um, one of the kids had a breakthrough when they talked about that Jesus willingly died for us. And there was a little girl I think also at the age of five or six, she shouted out, Jesus died? She'd never heard that before. And her face just frowned and turned sad, and she got really sad, and they told her, so yeah, he died because he loves us, but he rose again. And she's like, oh, that's good. <laughs> that's really good. You know, is the Bible relevant today? Of course it is, Right? Because we are people who need to hear that God loves us. No matter our circumstances, no matter what our zip code, no matter what our, our past history or problems or struggles, we need to hear that God loves us. I'm going to end with a verse with you here from John chapter 1. You want to talk about being relevant. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling 
among us. You know, we have a God who makes his dwelling with his people. The word just doesn't stay on a page. But that word came alive. And he comes alive among us every time we open it, every time we gather in his name. That word made flesh, who reveals his tabernacling presence among his people, reminds us we are not alone because the word is relevant. Praise be to God. In Jesus' name, amen.